Welcome to the Military Child Education Coalition podcast, the show that illuminates a wide range of challenges and triumphs our military-connected kids experience. My name is Susan Sellers, and I'll be your host for today. This episode was made possible thanks to the support from the Hurlbut Spouses Club. MSEC's webinar team recently hosted Dr. Eric Flake, a developmental behavioral pediatrician who created the Developmental Behavioral Family Readiness Center for the DOD. Additionally, Dr. Flake founded the only DOD Autism Center, JBLM, Center for Autism Resource, Education, and Services, also known as CARES. We've taken the Q&A portion from his presentation for today's episode and hope you find it beneficial. Very lucky to have you as part of our community, Dr. Flake, and hopefully we will continue to have that support. For those that don't know me, I am Susan Sellers, and I'm actually the host of MSEC's podcast series. And Dr. Flake has graciously offered to take some extra time to chat with us a little bit more about autism. Um, but at this time, if you have any questions, we would love for you to go ahead and post those in the chat box and we'll make sure to get to them. I saw that Patty had a question and Lisa had a question. So please know that we did see those. And I'm just trying to figure out a way to get started, Dr. Flake, because there was so much to consider in your presentation that it's kind of hard to pick where to start. So I think one of the things that really stood out for me was the statement that you shared, diagnosis is often the key limiting factor in access to services. And I think you quoted 40% aren't able to follow through with diagnosis either due to travel distance for evaluations, the average wait time, which could be six to 12 months, and then that mobility piece, which is specific to the military community. So for our families that are having to deal with these specific challenges, what would you recommend that they could do to sort of mitigate this delay in diagnosis? No, I appreciate that. I think this is a very um, great question because the system we're a part of, I think, is behind the times. And I think we as advocates and parents can help, but some of this means, well, some of it's investing some of our, our own resources is what I think it is, is if you're concerned, uh, it, it's definitely moving forward and communicating that to your provider. And I would imagine everyone has access to, to their primary care. And then it's gathering additional information that helps kind of delineate why their concerns are there. Again, like I mentioned, whether it's video information or it's certain terminology that's being utilized to highlight this concern and why it's impacting function. And then in the past, there used to be requirements that specific tests had to be done, the autism diagnostic observation scale. And in certain insurers, that test has to be done in order for the diagnosis to happen. That is not the case for us in the military. What I was saying about investing in other resources is there are now some online resources that are intended to help families um, again, some of that is done on their own because they're still trying to determine are those uh, channels medically approved channels uh, to get that information. And so it's, it's really kind of determining 
you know, is their concern, and their concern's always valid, but trying to, to look at the online and the, the social uh, communication screeners to be able to help determine is this something they need to push forward? And I guess the other thing is, is there's different aspects that they're looking for. Is a diagnosis does open up resources, but it also doesn't mean that you don't have to just wait for the diagnosis. I think there's a lot of things that can be done in between. And, and that's where that parent um, mediated intervention, that parent ownership of learning uh, behavioral skills and techniques, social things. Uh, and, and a lot of us do it. When kids aren't verbal, we try and use sign when, um, or learning a PEC system or things along those lines. And I, I'm tremendously proud of those parents that, that work hard despite a system uh, limitation. And, and then also the other thing, I guess, on an advocacy level is we are trying more and more to empower more physicians to be able to make this diagnosis. So being a voice at your local community of saying, we know that these specialists are training primary care providers to diagnose autism. We want to have a diagnosing autism provider here. And if they don't feel comfortable for it, will you as like hospital leadership or base leadership be willing to prioritize that within, within your clinic on, on base. So lots of different potential things to think about. I think that is some great tangible advice for our families and being proactive and being that advocate. A lot of times that's based on knowledge and information. And for our military families, again, that mobility piece can become a challenge, particularly when they're moving from state to state and even overseas. And can you sort of expand a little bit on maybe some of the specifics as to why that would be a challenge? I know you kind of touched upon it a little bit saying medical versus educational, but what are the variances that parents need to be aware of, at least educationally or knowledge-based wise with autism? I think one of the difficult challenges is that autism, to me, it's a community solution. It's a community of care. And we have 50 different states. And when we go overseas, there's different kind of environments or ecosystems within each of those bases. And how those supports or those services look a little bit different. There's some states that ABA is part of their education system. There's some states that it's not. And so some of the autism services in certain states from the education uh, are more robust. There's other places where access to medical services are more robust. And there's some states where you know, there's other priorities or other challenges, and so they're just not uh, able to have the bandwidth to, to provide that. So I find that families that move from one of those locations to another, that, that gets pretty difficult. And so, uh, again, it's trying to recreate this 100% service but it may be 60 medical and 40 educational in one place. And in the other place, it's 70, 30. And I think even those changes are, are difficult to manage. And, uh, you know, there's some communities that are very autism friendly communities. And there's others that, you know, you, you take a child with autism to Walmart and you're looked at, you know, in a different way. But uh, again, those are hard. I do think that we can do a lot of advocacy along those ways and, and maybe bring some of these, again, these stakeholders who have 
a diagnosis of autism as adults um, to continue to be a voice to sensitize our communities in, in better ways. Because I think that's one of the most effective ones is getting parents or also individuals who are now older with autism and advocate for those younger families and parents. Absolutely. And Michelle, I think we have a couple of questions in the chat box. Do you want to? Quite a few. Yeah. Let me start from the beginning here. Way back, we have Lisa was saying, why was Asperger's removed from the spectrum and then from DSM? Oh, this is a great question. And I was, uh, you know, showing my time and I, I think I was part of some of that past. And now I'm in this present and really having to change to embrace the future. And interestingly enough, that's not necessarily easy. Maybe you can go on your own professional and, and many of what you continue to practice is based off of what you were taught when you went to um, your formal education. So I still have some biases about that. I think there is a benefit of recognizing that there's separations within autism. There's also those that said, hey, this is all kind of one neurodevelopmental and we're doing a disservice to separate them out. I think there was some diagnostic substitution that was making difficulty of acceptance or stigma at that time. And there were also some services that some states were trying to prohibit that that diagnosis was available to have access to services where those that had an autism or another infantile autism was another diagnosis or pervasive developmental disorder. And so there was some, just some ongoing confusion thinking, Hey, the manifestations of the behaviors are um, still under a single umbrella. So the, the lumpers won and the splitters didn't, but I do think some of the literature is very helpful when you're looking at Asperger's or high functioning autism. And this is me predicting, okay. That as we get further along, I think that there's going to be specific therapy for level two and level three, or the more kind of nonverbal kids with autism. And the level one or the Asperger individuals need to have kind of their own specific kind of treatment pathway. And then justifying why that's medically necessary is going to be our ongoing challenge. Because I'm concerned if we separate them too much, our medical system is going to say, well, that's, that's a community, that's an education problem. And then we're only going to support level two and level three individuals. And, and the level ones are outside of our responsibility. All right. We have another one that's kind of specific to this family, but I think that it could help a lot of families. What services are available for a 23 year old male? So an adult. This is, he's the son of military parents that are now retired, living in Washington State. He's never been given a diagnosis uh, of autism, but exhibits many symptoms. Where would they go for help? Oh, this is a great question. And, and I am getting this more and more because uh, I'll tell you, it's limited for younger kids, and, but it's even more and more limited for older individuals as they are manifesting more concerns for high-functioning autism. There are a couple of places in, in the state uh, for immigration services. I find in other states, there's no one really there that feels comfortable identifying higher-functioning autism in older um, adults. Uh, and so it depends on if they're seeking evaluation. 
that's um, through usually like the larger multidisciplinary centers like the UW Autism Center or an individual named Gary Stovey, who's up in Seattle Children's. There's the, the other thing is, though, is more, I think, how do you help them with, with learning social skills? Because whether they have a diagnosis or not, and really trying to push an evidence-based manualized program called PEERS, P-E-E-R-S, that's done out of UCLA. And they have um, kind of social training for those with autism or not. It doesn't matter the diagnosis. It's just a, a beneficial from them. I really like what they have available on their website. They have an app and they make it freely available. And it's a curriculum for both the parents as well as for the individual themselves. So um, I, there's other ones out there, but this one just ends up being one of the, the best ones that, that I'm personally trying to get some of our services and even MSEC to wrap their arms around it and look at these being available. So thank, thanks for that question. And I am happy to answer some of these more on an individual basis because I feel for some of the challenges that, that people are going through. One thing I see kind of a common thread, and this has to do with families being impacted by current EFMP policies or the program itself. How can families influence the changes that are needed to better support their children that have autism? And this is where it's going to be. Really, we're just in, in a world where there's so much noise that I appreciate what families have done to this point to be where we're at. And, and I hope that we do take a pause and demonstrate the gratitude and the sacrifice of those families that have taken additional time to work with their own children, let alone think about that next generation. And um, so first that one, and then the, the second one is thinking about doing it effectively. And whether it's doing it local or doing it within the military or doing it within kind of chapters, it, it depends on where you wanna do it. But I think there's lots of effective ways for advocacy. And people, whether they want it or not, they need parent input. And so, and most places are becoming more and more open to parent councils or parent groups. And, and if you're able to kind of bring a, a, some of them together, I don't think they even need to be that well knit or organized, but just, again, practicing it out. I, I just don't want people to underestimate the, the value of, of doing it. But caring for kids, I, I guess this is my message I want to say. It's a long game. And I think the individuals that are wanting the soundbite or wanting the immediate press or, or thinking that this is, that it's, you know, from other initiatives that we're going to do this amazing change. I think, I personally think it's more through more steady and strategic means than it is necessarily through really bombastic and flashy ways of catastrophizing what's happening. That's where I'm encouraging parents to direct their energy and advocation, but also recognize that they may be planting seeds that other people are going to enjoy the shade later down the line and, and they may not. And so not always is fulfilling. I appreciate that. And I know we recently had a student on um, who shared having our children to be those advocates as well. I think his quote was, I'd like a seat at my own table. And so having resources and organizations that are going to listen to our kids, 
you know, particularly as you mentioned, you know, maybe the growing number of adults that either haven't been diagnosed with autism or that are growing kind of out of the system, I think to be supported is so important. Speaking of support and resources, I see that Lindsay had asked a specific question, but I, I think generally I'm sure other families encounter this as well. When they're struggling with not being able to receive ABA services, are there resources specifically out there that they could utilize for those parent-mediated interventions or some way that they can continue to help their kids? Right. And I think it's it's something that there are and there's, there's more and more. There's information from a, a CDC website. Both Humana and HealthNet have been required to put up some parent-mediated intervention information. And um, maybe I'll, I'll be able to put it on the, let's see, on the Humana website. I was just trying to think real quick what it's called. Learning Modules or Porch Light Autism Education Series. But uh, again, one of the things that we're trying to promote is uh, play. It's um, interacting in a, a play project that's come out of Ohio and some early intervention work there. There's also a Project Impact, which is um, another one that comes out of Michigan. Those are probably some of the, the primary evidence-based, but I'll go back to peers. I really like how peers presents itself because there's a toddler module, there's an elementary school, there's adolescent, there's a young adult, and I like how it helps across the continuum. Now, again, I think it helps primarily with more of the social communication factors and not necessarily the behavior, but uh, sometimes it's, that's one of the ones that I feel like us as, as parents uh, have an ownership to continue to, to work with versus if, if the sensory parts are, are so um, devastating, then getting our occupational therapy friends and other uh, individual community partners outside of ABA to be able to help complement some of those services. Great, thank you so much. And I think Michelle posted in the chat box, the peers out of UCLA. As we wrap up, I was just, just kind of scrolling through the chat box. I think you've answered this a little bit, but I wanna give you an opportunity to close it out, um, Dr. Flake, in regards to the future of autism. Where do you think it's going and how can that direction positively impact our families? So I think there's a couple of things. And again, I guess a warning and an optimism. Autism currently is viewed by some as, as a frontier for um, making a lot of money. And so sometimes that comes at the expense of our kids. And sometimes it, there's a benefit in it. So I think we need to be good consumers and sometimes be willing to say, hey, this isn't the right fit. But I know sometimes families feel very cornered if this is a one-size-fits-all type of service instead of with regards to some of the interventions. I feel that more and more we are going to have options in treatment options and identification options and evaluation options. And I feel like we need to be accepting and open of these different ways to to address autism as a community. I, I'd like to see us as a community continue to cross silos and collaborate better. I get that it, it sometimes is expensive, and so it's hard on certain systems that are strapped for resources. And so 
trying to delineate what is medically necessary and what is educationally necessary, what is necessary in general, I, I think are, are going to be um, important ones for us to pull out. I think there's a lot of work on the autism care demonstration that's trying to highlight what that is. And it's led to frustration from families. It's like, why do I have to fill out these questionnaires? Why do I have to complete this? Or why do these specific tools need to be used? The intent is to get some more goalposts or, or guidelines. Um, I, again, I get how that gets misunderstood. Finally, I feel like the biggest one is objective measures. We have to have objective measures to determine what the deficit is instead of just subjectively saying what the deficit is and then being able to do interventions or therapies and then with those similar measures be able to demonstrate improvement and its ability to be generalized in other settings. And so that's where my hope is, is that we have more and more of those and we're able to then quantify it, as well as qualify the impact that what we're doing in, other than just kind of adding a label or, or a title to somebody's behavior. I just want to thank our audience for the questions. I want to thank Michelle for her help today. It's always exciting to have a live audience for our podcast series. We really appreciate hearing from each of you because I think when you share your story or your experience, that helps to promote the issue and to continue to keep it in the spotlight so that we can improve those supports for our children. Dr. Flake, thank you so much for staying on and chatting with us. Um, we're very grateful for the years of service that you've dedicated to our children, and we hope that you continue dedicating to our military community. We want to wish you the, the best of luck and look forward to watching you and how you're going to impact the future of autism. Well, thank you. And what an incredible experience it has been for me to care for military families and uh, hope to continue to do so for many more years. If you'd like to watch Dr. Flake's entire webinar, we will include a link in the show's notes along with a few other resources. Thanks for listening to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. And don't forget to leave us a comment to let us know what topics you want to hear more about. We'd like to give one more special thanks to the Hurlburt Spouses Club for supporting this episode, and we hope you will too by giving today's show a five-star rating. For more information about MSEX programs, go to www.militarychild.org. I'm Susan Sellers. Until next time, live a great story. Thank you.